I'm Jason Bradford. I'm Michelle Miller. And I'm Rob Dietz. Welcome to Crazy Town, where I think that I shall never see a thing as lovely as a global free trade agreement that maximizes profits for corporate overlords. Hey, this is Rob. I'm filling in this week for our producer, Melody Travers. In this season of Crazy Town, Jason, Asher, and I are exploring the watershed moments in history that have led humanity into the cascading crises we face in the 21st century. Today's episode is about the rise of neoliberalism and its outsized influence on politics, economics, and how we view the world. The watershed moment took place in 1971. At the time, the estimated carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere was 326 parts per million, and the global human population was 3.78 billion. Hey guys, how are you doing today? Rob, Jason. Pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah not too shabby, you know, it's um, it's sunny outside right now, it helps. Yeah, you know your neighbors, right, pretty well? Uh, yeah, some more than others, but yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm friends with some neighbors. You Okay, well I was talking to Jason, here we are at his farm. You got neighbors, they're not too far away, right? No, I mean, no, no, it's, just, it's kind of like know. a little cluster of homes and then the farms around, fields around them, yeah. Right, so, I mean, have you ever like gone and asked your neighbor for a favor like borrowed some sugar done something yeah yeah tools usually you know um uh-huh. when i was a kid we would often like run out of ingredients to make cookies and i'd go get some butter or half a cup of sugar or something did you happen to ask any of your neighbors like just off the top of your head if they would help you complete the transformation of the entire global economy turn it into nightmare hellscape <laughs> that is our current socioeconomic political system I didn't come up yet, but maybe we can have a meeting I, about it. I, I borrowed uh, Netflix from a neighbor. Does that count as a nightmare oh, escape? Oh, oh, don't tell it. Yeah. You guys, you guys are losers. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, some people may may think it's it's a nice, kind, neighborly thing to, you know, borrow and lend each other things. You know, if you're not colluding oh, to uh, take over the global world order. You got powerful neighbors. That's, that's I, like, that's a powerhood. I'm a little stung. Here, we're supposed to be co-hosting this show with him, and he thinks we're losers. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get back. Yeah. Uh, look, I haven't done this either, but I want to tell you about two neighbors uh, from Richmond, Virginia, who did actually exactly what I oh. was just talking about. Okay. So one of them, his name is, is Eugene Sidner Jr. I, I could be pronouncing his, his last, mispronouncing his last name, but... Yeah, we'll go with it. Fuck Sidner. Him. That Sidner. sounds all right. Sidner. I like that. Right. The other guy is Lewis F. Powell Jr. They're both juniors, which, you know, I'm wondering if there's something something there. We need mm. to look look a little side-eyed at the juniors out there. No offense, junior mm. listeners. I think you meant definitely to uh, offer offense with that. Well, I'm going to extrapolate <laughs> from just these two guys and say that all juniors, yeah, good, good when you bring size. them together, ah. bad things happen. Okay? Well, so... Um, Powell was a uh, successful lawyer. Okay. okay. Uh, he'd been president of the American Bar Association. So Ooh. not just a successful lawyer, but pretty powerful and influential lawyer. Yeah. Had yeah. honcho. Yeah. Just a few years before the watershed moment we're going to be talking about, he actually very soon after what we're going to be discussing today, he joined the U.S. Supreme Court. He was nominated by Richard Nixon, joined the U.S. Supreme Court. So wow. major maher, right? Yeah, yeah, this yeah, guy, yeah. Right? yeah. Now, his neighbor, no slouch, okay, 
Eugene, I'm going to call him Gene. Okay. okay. He probably would hate that, but fuck him. Um, <laughs> he was a successful businessman. He had served in the Virginia legislature as a Democrat, mind uh-huh. you. And he was, at the time, was serving as the education director for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Okay. okay. Yep. Now, you guys know the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, right? Yeah, they're in, you know, most most mid-size or up, or even some small towns even still have it. Right. I, I local never, chambers of commerce yeah. you're talking about. I never yeah. really knew what it was. I mean, I, I think of the chamber. It's like a Harry Potter chamber of secrets or something like that. You're thinking about chamber pots, I think. Right? Well, maybe, yeah. but... They yeah. advocate for local business issues, maybe, or right. stuff like that. So the yeah. U.S. Chamber of Commerce was like a national organization. Right. So here we are. It's 1971. Oh, it's a great year. I was Good born year music, that year. Music, music had some hits. Yes. Um, I think that the number one song at the time was a, was a Bee Gees love song ballad, oh. you know. <laughs> How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, I think it oh, was a song. The best so. falsetto group of all time. Yeah. Where, are you, where are you going with this watershed moment? <laughs> yeah, this is a love story, actually, this, <laughs> this watershed moment. No, so... August 23rd, 1971. Okay. Okay. Long, hot summer. Just all you can imagine is, you know, one neighbor goes in his backyard, leans over the fence. You know, the other guy's like mowing the lawn or something. He's like, hey, hey, uh, come here. I got I got to ask you a question. Will you help me try to figure out how to completely transform the, the U- U.S. economy? That's probably not how it happened. And then the world. It was actually August 23rd, 1971 was the day that our buddy, Lewis Powell, Turned over a confidential memo that he had drafted. Oh, for 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 Gene. For Gene, Eugene had asked him, "Hey, would you write a memo? Help write a memo that I can share with uh, with the board, the president of the board of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, with some ideas." They've probably been talking shop. Yeah, for yeah, a while, yeah. You know? Sure. Can you write? Can you write this up? This is so, inspiring. I want to write a confidential memo that fifty years from now. Is Somebody's a watershed be, moment. Yeah, going to be talking about yeah. on a on whatever on a podcast. podcasts become fifty yeah. years from now. Yeah. So he turns this over. It's called the Attack on American Free Enterprise System, but it's much better known as the Powell Memo. Okay, I think for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, some of our listeners may have heard of the Powell Memo. It's in certain circles, it's become sort of infamous. Yes. as as an influential document. It wasn't actually sort of this conspiratorial sort of master plan, but what it did do is lay out a roadmap, mm. the roadmap for what would become the neoliberal world order. And I it, think it's easy to say that neoliberalism has come to dominate our economic system. Yeah. You know, our domestic politics, geopolitics has had this huge influence on the role of government, even if most people aren't actually familiar with the, the term neoliberalism. Well... This is a good time to maybe take a little pause, a little station break, and see if we can figure out a little something more about that word, neoliberalism. What, what, what are we talking about? Well, I can get into this a little bit. Yeah, you are. You, you are, are a neoliberal. You're one of the most <laughs> neoliberalist-looking mofos that I know. Uh-huh. You're going to pull out your, your neoliberal you know, card from yeah, your yeah, wallet? From my wallet. With, yeah, yeah. The Association for Neoliberal Douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, here's, you know, various people will define it slightly differently, whatever. Sure. But okay, here's a good one, I think, from David Harvey, who wrote A Brief History of Neoliberalism. I mean, pretty obvious. That, that seems like a good source right yeah. there. Okay. Neoliberalism is a theory of political economic practices <laughs> that proposes that human well-being 
can best be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong private property rights, free markets, and free trade. Okay? Okay, yeah. Now, the role of the state is to create and preserve the institutional framework appropriate to such practices. It must set up those military, defense, police, and legal structures and functions required to secure private property rights and to guarantee by force, if need be, the proper functioning of markets. Damn it, you're going to buy that whether exactly. you like it or not. By force, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the role of the state <laughs> is kind of like a police state to enforce private property rights. <laughs> Furthermore, if markets do not exist in areas such as land, water, education, healthcare, social security, environmental pollution, then they must be created by state action if necessary. But beyond these tasks, the state should not venture. So, boy... Yeah privatize, 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 and use the state to enforce privatization. Right. Yeah. Thanks for that definition. I think, you know, there's so many terms that get bandied around and it gets confusing, right? Right. People don't know what... What, what is neoliberalism versus liberalism? And right. is liberalism... Is neoliberalism mean that we're talking about liberals here, right? So... There's too much liberal use of the word liberal, oh, I have wow. to say. Oh, wow. I see what you did there. Yeah. That's- now, I will say... Okay. That neoliberalism didn't actually originate with, with the Powell memo, right? He just kind of gave it a, a, a shot, like he kind of galvanized it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about why the Powell memo was so influential and why we picked it. But just, you know, in terms of context of neoliberalism itself. So as we just were talking about, there have been different uses of the term, different meanings going back to the 19th century. But it wasn't really used commonly until the 1980s, and it was actually really used by critics, Mm. primarily. But sort of the core tenets of neoliberalism, even if they weren't using that that term, actually go back, I think, to this other seminal moment that happened in Paris in 1938. Okay. Okay. That sounds like a great time to be in Paris. So, yeah, I mean... Before you got invaded. Gay Paris. So let me tell you about the Walter Lippmann Colloquium. It sounds just... Fascinating, stimulating. You want to be there, mm. right? Oh, yeah. anytime I can get into a colloquium. With I, the lip like, man. Yeah. yeah. It brought together 26 intellectuals. I want to put that in quotes. Yeah. Can I just put that in quotes? Is <laughs> yeah. that okay? Including Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises. Oh, yeah. Still famous today. They are, actually. Yeah. Hayek in particular, I think, is, is quite influential still to this day yeah. by a lot of uh, folks and with that bent, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. And I'm just going to give you a chance, okay? Because I know we, we sometimes we quiz each other and we have like hard quizzes that yeah. sort of fail. I'm going to give you a pretty easy quiz. How many women do you think were there in the 26? Oh, okay. maybe Ayn Rand. But she was born, was she born by then? She was around. I don't know. She might have been born, but she, uh, yeah, probably a little too little. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to actually try. I'm going to go with zero. <laughs> Yeah. People of color, maybe someone was beat red, you know. <laughs> there was an angry man Well, they spent too much time on the beaches in Spain before traveling or something like that. Does that count? Yeah, does that count? Or they were delivering some overly impassioned speech, frothing at yeah. the mouth. Got, yeah, got something kind of like that. So, yeah. yeah, so yeah, it was just a bunch of, of white guys. A lot of Europeans, yeah. some Americans, but... So the purpose when they got they got together there in, in Paris, keep in mind the year because we're going to come back to that, 1938, was to construct a new liberalism to counter what they saw were uh, dangerous threats coming from Keynesian economics on the one hand, 
And we'll talk maybe a little bit about that later. And on the other hand, communism, right? Mm-hmm. Socialism yeah. and communism, which obviously was, was seen as a, as a major threat. Yeah, I mean, right. Of course, communism was clearly seen as a threat in Europe. It was, it was rising especially. But Keynes and Keynesian economics were a real boogeyman to these guys because that yeah. had been a success within the own, their own sort of Western democracies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you talk about Hayek as being sort of a hero economist in this neoliberal world. Well, John Maynard Keynes was like the hero economist in the, the sort of New Deal politics. World. Right, exactly. The New Deal was influenced quite a bit. The FDR administration adopted a lot of these proposals in viewing the role of government in the economy as one of sort of damping down on these business cycles, providing credit, providing a place for employment to occur, concerned about unemployment rates. Yeah, like once the economy starts slowing down, it's like the federal government just pumps a bunch of money in and then unemployment goes away. Well, again, keep in mind, this is 1938. World War II is is on the horizon, but not not known yet, although there's lots of stirrings going on. But really what people were reacting to was the Great Depression. Yes, and, exactly. And in particular, for these guys, it was the, the response of, of the U.S. government, in particular to the Great Depression, by initiating the, the New Deal, right? Yep, and setting and that, up all these programs like Social Security, and, you know, that yeah, maybe came later. But employing people right. by the millions. And all of those policies were meant to avoid that terrible state of depression, of unemployment, and and these downturns. And when these guys, the Hayek's came along, they called it neoliberalism to differentiate it from the liberalism that kind of created the conditions where you could have a depression. Well, I mean, yeah, because part of the problem was, is that, that there was so much free marketeering going on without enough government intervention that there wasn't a state big enough to enforce these private property laws, you know, trademarks or patents, or, you know, you didn't have a big enough court system. You didn't have a big enough police state to go after these sort of white collar crimes. You know, you didn't, you you could be, you you could have um, unregulated um, businesses that gave a bad reputation that then undermined other businesses. So they wanted enough regulation, I think, to create the ability for the private market to really step in and and then take over. It's pretty wild, though, that the, the neo, that prefix, is used to say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to give the state power again, but only the power to make us more powerful, yeah. <laughs> us yeah. corporations and... And politicians who who believe in uh, sort of corporatocracy. Yeah, so that 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 really explains the neo piece of it, right? They didn't they weren't talking about laissez-faire liberalism, right? Where right. it's like a free for all. Yeah, maybe we should uh, get into what's called the political compass a little bit. You may have seen charts of this. People may have seen charts of this because people have about left or right, and and the political compass was actually developed in two thousand and one to really differentiate between different forms of left and right, let's say, or it, it has a spectrum. So you could think of the spectrum that's normally the, the the social spectrum between authoritarianism and libertarianism in the social regard. So social libertarianism... Those are being at, 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 at ends. Odds, for, right, at for odds, yeah. Other, yeah. So authoritarian leanings might be, you know, like hyper-religious folks that really want their way or no way, right? So the they, Taliban. Like the Taliban, right? Yeah. Whereas 
social libertarians will be very accepting of say, you know, you can wear whatever you want, you can believe with everyone, listen to whatever music you want. We want the government to stay out of your affairs. You're a private, free-thinking individual. Do whatever you want in your bedroom. Yeah. Do, yeah. They don't care about that stuff. Yeah. So that's the social dimension. And then on the political uh, economy dimension, there are, there are those who want the free market, so to speak, or private ownership to dictate most of the economic affairs versus those who would like the state to intervene quite a bit and the state be spending money and determining what jobs and what priorities there are. Right. And the extreme end of that is is communism, is, right? Exactly. There, there is no private en- enterprise at all. It's all state owned. Right. 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 And yeah. so if you put the political compass on neoliberalism, it would be, you know, the state should be big enough to enforce these private property rights. So there's some state in there, but it's not huge. And then there's very little state intervention in economic affairs. So they would be on the political compass in, in sort of sort of this right lower quadrant, okay, where the upper quadrant is authoritarianism, the lower is libertarianism, the right is sort of free market economics, the left is state economics. So these guys are kind of in the lower right quadrant. And what's interesting is almost all political figures that we think about or elect are upper right. So they tend to be lower state intervention. They've bought into free market, but they're more socially authoritarianism. They use social issues as wedge issues often to get elected. Hmm. So you think about people that we think of as more left progressive, but they will use social issues as wedge issues. And then so are people on the right. So you find on the the political spectrum, like, you know, a lot of the Democrats in, in the US, as well as the Republicans are upper right quadrant. Well, whether they're using them cynically as wedge issues, or they believe them, what you're saying is that they, they intervene on some level on those social issues. Yes, the they social, intervene on the social issues. Social cultural issues. Yes. Well, I think listeners would be interested to know that we all three took this yeah. test. We, we all answered way too many questions to be placed in these quadrants in the political compass. Yeah, and, it, and I was, I, I got to say, I, I was a little confused by it because I, I didn't think that I was like at the very farthest right bottom corner. I I don't know how that happened, but somehow it did. No, 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 no. We were all social libertarians, all three of us, except for Jason, who is the right wing <laughs> extremist. Uh, I was the closest to the middle of these other from the other two, but which you, a, you were still pretty far. I was but, pretty uh, far. I was like in the middle of the of the of the left bottom left quadrant. But after taking the test, from here on out, you're just going to be known as the Stalinist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No. Well, um, Stalin would be a authoritarian left and Mao. So you look at the, uh, the reading list. They have reading lists. And it's pretty funny because the reading list for us would be like Noam Chomsky and Naomi Klein. And You know what's really funny, though? You can't find a politician who, who's in the quadrant that no. we're in. And that's, that's really where the whole story lies. Politician why, or a government, yeah. Why we're critiquing the hell out of this. <laughs> uh, we spend way too much time talking about the political compass, but I, I would suggest that folks go check it out. It's just politicalcompass.org. Yeah. You could test yourself and you could sort of see what, what Jason's talking about in terms of these quadrants. In any case, let's get back to neoliberalism, yeah? Yeah. And before we finally get to this, this watershed moment, the Powell memo, I just want to talk about some other influences, right? We, we went back to 1938. We talked a little bit about some of the roots of neoliberalism. I, I want to reference... 
other voices, other sources of influence other than the Powell memo. A big one is our buddy Milton Friedman, who we probably have talked about before on this yeah. podcast. I'm not sure. Buddy? That's, pre- that's yeah, pretty generous to call yeah. him. He that. and I are tight, man. Yeah, libertarian, we are, right? We are tight. Mm-hmm. So just a year before the Powell memo was submitted to the Chamber of Commerce in September 1970, New York Times actually published an op-ed by, by Milton Friedman. And it was called A Friedman Doctrine, The Social Responsibility of Business is to increase its profits. Mm-hmm. So I, they forgot the uh, anti in front of anti-social uh, should have been <laughs> well, in that title, this is, right? This, is, this was Milton's <laughs> argument. His argument was pretty basic. He said, and I'm going to quote here, there's one and only one social responsibility business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. Right? I, Hard to find a case where that's been true, though. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the problem, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't doubt the intelligence of, of a Milton Friedman. I'm sure he's smarter than I am. But couldn't he just look down the road a little ways and see that once a business becomes so profitable and it's trying to become more and more profitable and that's its only charge or uh, reason for existing that it starts doing things like buying the government and yeah, right. making, s- the, making rules. the rules yeah. so that it can keep doing what it wants to do. Right. Yeah. And I mean, he says without deception or fraud, but come on. But you could do you that know? without deception or fraud. Still. Right. Well, you Just game the system. Yeah. You either game the system or you cheat. Right. But to think that, that neither of those things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing, the time this is happening, right? I mean, gosh, this is the early 70s, and it was coming out of the 60s and all the environmental movement, civil rights movement, people on campuses with uh, bell bottoms and long hair. These guys must have hated all that. Yeah, I, I think they probably did. And I think that's a good context to to think about the Powell memo again, because one of the things that that really drove his writing of that memo was this feeling of being under attack. You had all these conservatives who believed that free markets and capitalism were, were under attack from a you know, four different sides of a say like a square that had like hemmed yeah. them in. So they had uh this real bone to pick with Keynesianism, you know, the New Deal is, we're talking 1971, so New Deal is what, 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still kind of the dominant economic, political paradigm that's getting used. Right. And though it's ironically is that these are business, these are like business and political conservative types who are now calling themselves neoliberals. So that's what's, that's the irony, sort of the, the, the word problems we have with all of these terms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, you have another side of that square, a four-part attack, which is unions were still growing and getting strong. And of course, if you think about a labor union, that is not something that helps a corporation maximize its profit. You know, that's something that where you're trying to deal with equity yeah, your, your for workers. Wages might go up, right? Yeah. You also had the consumer safety movement. The you know, remember Ralph Nader kind of yeah. leading the charge there, and that led to to all kinds of things like there's a law, the Highway Safety Act of 1970s that said, oh, cars have to have seat belts. Yeah. Well, guess what? That's not as profitable for a car maker if they got to add 
safety they got to spend 1995 on a, on a <laughs> safety implement yeah those Jeez. early seat belts were made out of duct tape so it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't quite that strong but. and then finally of course my favorite is the environmental movement was kicking up pretty strong at that time you know it's kind of sad to think of richard nixon as maybe the greatest enviro president we've had but so many <laughs> good laws for protecting the environment were coming online at that time and of course, that's that gets in the way of business. Yeah. You know, if you have to do a, an environmental impact statement before you dig your coal mine, well, that's no fun. Before that, you set the river on fire, right? What what was what that? Yes, God. <laughs> what was the business of uh, you know what what profits were they making when they were starting those river fires? <laughs> Well, they, they cut down on their heating costs. What is it? Externalized costs, internalized profits. Or yeah. But so, I mean, that's the, that's the deal is that these guys were feeling attacked on all sides from these different kind of movements that were bubbling up. Yeah. And, and I, I want to get back to, I think, the comment you just made, Jason, which is just talking about the irony of like, or the confusion of these people being neoliberals, but they're actually conservatives. They're probably culturally, culturally socially conserv- yeah. conservatives. And I think they were feeling... All these things coming together. I mean, it's hard, you know, maybe some of our older listeners, they were part of that that era, but there was a lot of chaos going on, yeah. right? I mean, you had all kinds of protests happening. The, you know, anti-war movement was was full on. The civil rights movement. You got Black Panthers. Yeah. You got all this stuff happening on college campuses, UC Berkeley and other things like that. Yeah, like, key parties. Yeah. Yeah. I- I just recently saw the movie Taxi Driver for the first time, which I think came out right in that that era. It seems like a good finger on the pulse of those times for what you're talking about, like chaos and politics and the economy. And it was like a time where I think a lot of these guys felt, these business types felt threatened on multiple ends. Well, Powell, you know, Powell was under a big threat because... um uh, the dude was on the board of Philip Morris <laughs> uh, until he Come joined. The, until he joined the Supreme you Court, you can't make this shit up. What? No. <laughs> That's why I love the guy. The, yeah. When he would issue his statements from the bench, he'd be like, "I've been a smoker for twenty five years, no problem." <laughs> yeah, I mean, just just say that again for one second. He was on the board of Philip Morris until he went right to the Supreme Court, yeah. right? Yeah, just from one to the other. Yeah. yeah, And of course, Philip Morris has no social purpose other than to make profits right. and, and kill children. Well, yeah. And they were obviously f- feeling under attack. I mean, the, the links to, to cancer, that was a bummer for them. They were having a hard time getting physicians to run ads with them. <laughs> right, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> That's right. So let's, okay, let's, let's talk about the memo itself. You know, this is like lovely bedtime reading. I'm just going to start... Where he started. So, quote, No thoughtful person could question that the American economic system is under broad attack. There always had been some who opposed the American system and preferred socialism or some form of statism, communism, or fascism. But what concerns us is quite new in the history of America. We are not dealing with episodic or isolated attacks from our relatively few extremists or even from the minority socialist cadre. Rather, the assault on the enterprise system is broadly based and consistently pursued. Oh, wow. Doesn't Powell sound kind of like like one of these paranoid guys that's like trying to gather 
allies to his well, side. Well, he's a freaking rich dude who's about to go in the Supreme Court, and he's like quaking in his boots. This is so interesting, right? Yeah, he's he's pointing to this grand conspiracy. I, I, I like his rhetorical device at the beginning, though. No thoughtful person. Know, like, yeah. hey, right, right. You're an idiot oh, if you don't man. know. You have to completely agree with me. I'm just going to set this out right up front. No thought. I'm going to start everything I write with no thoughtful person. That's a, that's a good one. He continues, in, in, and I think this is really important because it points to sort of the, the strategy laid out in the memo. He continues by saying that the most disquieting voices joining the chorus of criticism come from perfectly respectable elements of society, from the college campus, from the pulpit, the media, the intellectual and literary journalism, the arts and sciences, and from politicians. Right, stepping up the paranoia even more. So it's not just that there's like this group of these fringe yeah, socialists. You know, socialists or whatever, yeah. although he did talk about how they, they were so well-funded, which is... <laughs> Uh. Fucking laughable. But, you know, he's talking about that those views, this, these anti-enterprise views, right, were, were really being espoused by respectable elements of society. But was this guy, like, uh, buddies with McCarthy? Like it, it, Good question. It, it kind of sounds like uh, a similar point of well, view. Well, I mean, keep, keep in mind, right, we're in the height of the Cold War still. The Soviet Union communism was, was very top of mind as a, as a real threat. I mean, the whole idea of, like, Vietnam was about stopping the spread of communism, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, you can sort of kind of understand the paranoia. And when you see all these hippies on college campuses or doing dropouts or you, you've got Earth Day with, what, 10 million people marching in the streets and you've got all kinds of alternate cultural stuff going on, probably pretty scary for these guys, yeah. right? So anyway, so he's he laid out five targets, for persuasion, basically, in this memo. And and we I, we were talking about this you know, a little bit. You know, one of them is the campus, right? So he, he argued that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has to embark on a long-term plan to produce the academic voice for the free market. They're seeing college campuses being these hotbeds of, of real liberal, progressive thought and rhetoric, and they needed to counter that. So they needed to invest. <laughs> and that might be where the economics departments really got taken over then over this after this period. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. for right. sure. And if there's one thing you want on a college campus, you don't want creative thinking, <laughs> right? right? You, yeah. you want you want the, the most conservative, most neoliberal thoughts. I, I will say, keep you know, keep in mind for them that they 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 probably did not see that there was a balance whatsoever. Do you know what I mean? They might have even thought that they were just trying to correct to have a, a balance rather than saying, let's eradicate these liberal voices altogether. We just need to counter it a little bit, right? Yeah. So he was talking about developing a staff of scholars and speakers and evaluating textbooks. Kind of reminds me now of like the critical race <laughs> yeah. theory stuff, right? right? Evaluating textbooks, fighting for equal time on campuses, that kind of a thing. Okay. Well, also, he had a long list of things for the Chamber of Commerce to do, his buddy, his neighbor friend. Yeah. Also, you know, educate the public on the virtues of a free market, getting the public on our side, using staff of speakers prominent on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, scholarly journals and books, fund all these things, fund people to be out there in the media all the time. That is something we definitely started seeing. Well, yeah, you like today, it feels overwhelmingly like they, they succeeded. It's crazy when you look at how much in the media that notion is. I have to say my favorite venue where 
Powell was looking to to peddle influence was the political arena. And this is great because he kind of says to the Chamber of Commerce, he says, quote, as unwelcome as it may be to the chamber, it should consider assuming a broader and more vigorous role in the political arena. He's basically like <laughs> saying, yeah, I know this is unsavory, but you got to you gotta just take one for the team and get in there and get involved in, in lobbying your politicians. And what's absolutely bonkers about this is the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce wound up becoming the largest lobbying group in the United States spending more than $1.75 billion between 1998 and 2022. And that's 2.5 times higher than the next highest lobbyist. Yeah. Wow. It's just crazy. Yeah, and that's just lobbying, right? So it does, that doesn't count their political campaign spending, right? Right, so right. It's, yeah. I mean, fr- from a group that had been around for a while and wasn't really engaging in that stuff to now basically being – the, the most dominant lobbying force and a voice for business, right, in in, in the country. It's yeah, look at it. I mean, remarkable. they took Powell's uh, advice. They took it as a challenge, as un, unwelcome as it may be. Oh, it's unwelcome, but we're going to just take it and, and, and go do this. Right. So we talked about the campus. We talked about the public sphere. We talked about the political arena. I want to talk about the courts, too. So he... He basically laid out that the chamber needed to have a real strategy to engage in the court system. And and now they needed to develop a highly competent staff of lawyers. They had to play the role within the courts as a spokesman for American business. It's interesting to think about now so much consternation, obviously, over what's happening in the courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court around women's reproductive rights, for example, and other issues that really have to do with with individual rights. But it's remarkable the impact that's happened within the court system in terms of it becoming so pro-business. You yeah, know? And, yeah. he, and you look at, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court, and consistently what you've seen from the court and it's not just a court when it's when it's run by conservatives. A consistent favoring of of the business interests over those of consumers or, or the individual, right? Or, yeah. or even to the extent that that they've upheld the idea that corporations are citizens. Yeah, yeah. but you know what's amazing question. is that Powell's the ultimate role model for for taking over the courts, exactly. right? Here he is. Yeah. He's, he's the guy that's just saying, we need to do this. And then he goes off and becomes a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> yeah, good job. Yeah, at least he's consistent, man. <laughs> yeah. he, he walked the talk. That's he's right. a model yeah. model for neoliberalism right. exactly. agenda. And, yeah. you know, also they went after um, stockholders. So I guess, you know, people who own, own stocks, they're owning these corporations, right? Yeah. Through publicly traded entities. And the Chamber of Commerce should educate the 20, at the time, in 1971, the 20 million American stockholders on how they benefit from the current system and encourage them to become politically active and fight for that system. And you could see that, how influential it is to think about the interests of the shareholder as being sort of the bottom line. And that's consistent with what, what Milton Freeman was talking about. And that's yeah. it. Well, that's shareholders. It. Look yeah. how many people now got aligned with that through retirement accounts and mutual funds. And it's, right. it's right. just grown it's incredibly. Way more shareholders of stocks now than there were back then. And then you that which means you have people rooting for continuous profiteering, continuous growth in companies, continuous growth in the economy. 
because their personal wealth is directly tied to it. Yeah. It's a pretty brilliant strategy, really. Right. So so he lays out this this strategy, talks about these arenas that they needed to to focus on and really invest in. But he also ends the memo with an appeal that would I think become really a core part of the messaging. And one of the things that's so sort of nefarious about the kind of the neoliberal worldview, not so much neoliberal policies, but the worldview. And and he said that, quote, the threat to the enterprise system is not merely a matter of economics, it is also a threat to individual freedom. There seems to be little awareness that the only alternatives to free enterprise are varying degrees of bureaucratic regulation of individual freedom, ranging from that under moderate socialism to the iron heel of the leftist or rightist dictatorship. As the experience of socialist and totalitarian states demonstrates, the contraction and denial of economic freedom is followed inevitably by governmental restrictions on other cherished rights. It is this message above all others that must be carried home to the American people, right? So he's conflating yeah. the, the freedom of enterprise and, and markets with that of individual freedom. Well, yeah. that's why the Scandinavian countries are such miserable places to live, obviously, <laughs> yeah. and why life sucks there. Absolutely. <laughs> Those people just, yeah, they've got no say over, over their lives at all. Well, that that is very interesting, though. How he almost is talking about this slippery slope problem, right? He's worried that if we give in at all to allowing the state to create some kind of balance in economic affairs, that it will then take over everything and we'll right. lose all freedom. But you know, what's interesting, of course, is that in the Keynesian situation, it was the state that prevented people from starving. It was the state that prevented people from being completely unemployed in perpetuity. Yeah. They stepped in and. You know, are you free when you you can't you find can't a meal? Feed, you can't feed your kids. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So th- this is the irony here. Well, um, you're free to starve. You're free to starve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey. yeah. Yeah. Well, let's start making a little turn toward the these effects of the Powell memo and where it went. And I wanted to tell you guys about this book that I read not too long ago by Jane Mayer called Dark Money. It's kind of about money and influence and politics and. She said that it was Powell's memo that electrified the right, prompting a new breed of wealthy ultra-conservatives to weaponize their philanthropic giving in order to fight a multi-front war of influence over American political thought. So, you know, there's your there's your reasoning behind the watershed moment selection of Powell's memo. It was like the rallying cry that these pretty powerful individuals and then pretty powerful institutions needed to to kind of coalesce. Yeah, I I think that's the direct legacy we're talking about here. Like, since all three of us were born, basically, Mm -hmm. the transformation that's occurred has been rather remarkable. And it's this rise of these institutions that did not exist before. And this became the blueprint, then, of the American conservative movement. And it used then these think tanks, for example, and ultra-wealthy businessmen like the Koch brothers, Joseph Kors, Richard Mellon, uh, Scafi, they eagerly jumped on board and they collaborated in building these institutions, lobbying through them, and hugely influential. So you hear them. This is where you see so-and-so from the Heritage Foundation or the Cato Institute or the American Enterprise Institute or the Federalist Society with the courts and mm-hmm. the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC. I want to go work for one of those for a while just to see like how stodgy and, and uh, I think they're. I think a lot are. of them are pretty energized. I, I mean, I'm going to admit something. They probably pay a little better than PCI. <laughs> 
Sweet. Now I'm definitely going to go work for one of them. But yeah, I mean, anybody I, from the uh, the Heritage Foundation that's <laughs> listening, uh, you, you want a? Um, I should drop the ecological economist. Put, get rid of the ecological. Yeah. I'll just yeah. be a. Uh, how about a neo economist? Does that work? <laughs> uh, it's it's true. I mean, you think about those institutions. I mean, those yeah. are all in a sense a direct result of the the Powell memo that that strategy that was that was laid out. Yeah. You could just pick any one of these and look at the influence that they've had because they've also themselves have had this multi-pronged strategy, you know, working in college campuses, working in the courts. I mean, you just look at the Federalist Society and yeah. the success that they've had, basically grooming from the earliest stages of people's schooling and careers to become justices that going all the way up to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's like, you know, know we have this funnel for for Olympic athletes, right, where yeah. there's training camps for skiing or whatever, and and some of those kids end up making it onto the Olympic team. I think the same sort of idea that you, you set up these institutions that are just checking people on college campuses and moving them into clerkships and, yeah, exactly. and, and paying, paying for things, giving them scholarships and grants, and the creme de la creme end up sitting on the Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, we don't just have to stick with anecdotes or even speculation. The numbers don't lie. I can give you some stats, and these come from another book that Alana unearthed for us. This is from Alec McGillis. He wrote a a book called Fulfillment, and he's looking at the rise of the influence of big business over the 70s in follow-up to to the Powell Memo being released. And uh, so here's just a few stats. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce doubled its membership between 1974 and 1980. That's a short time frame. You have another doubling here, the staunchly conservative National Federation of Independent Businesses. They doubled in size over the decade of the 70s. In 1968, only 100 corporations had public affairs offices in Washington, D.C., a decade later, well, <laughs> doubling, ha, now, how about five times? Now now you got 500. Mm-hmm. God, I can't imagine what it's like now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. It's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, okay, one last stat. The number of firms with registered lobbyists in Washington grew from 175 in 1971 to 2,500 in 1982. That's and that's a, in 82. That's so, a long right. time ago, 82. Yeah, today, there are more lobbyists in Washington than there are stars in the galaxy. <laughs> there are more lobbyists in Washington than there are atoms on the planet Earth. There are more, I don't know. There's, there's a lot. There, there's many, many, yeah. many lobbyists. <laughs> what a fun town. God, yeah. that sounds so great. Yeah, and uh, since it's all funded by Joseph Coors, not only... Do you have all these lobbyists, but they're drinking the worst beer ever brewed? <laughs> I don't, do they even brew it, uh, or do they just like do they just pour rice into water and wait and see? What I, I don't happens? think it's rice. I think it's piss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of the things about Powell's strategy, I think, is worth pointing out and talking about is sort of the long game approach. They they took this approach of of trying to, in a sense, either create new institutions, infiltrate existing institutions like higher ed, for example the court systems, 
and and knowing that it was going to take some time, right? So you talked to Rob a little bit about how the landscape was changing over the course of the 70s since the, the Powell Memo was released. But, you know, really all came together, this beautiful, beautiful moment, right? When when Reagan is elected, oh, you know, and then now it's mourning in America. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. <laughs> We're all mourning for America. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Put the astrologists in charge. Yeah. Well, and it's it's not just uh, Reagan. I mean, we've we've talked about Reagan before. In fact, I want to remind our listeners of our second ever episode wow. where where Jason that was years ago. Yeah, I was a young man. You actually proposed <laughs> digging up Reagan's corpse and then punching him in the mouth. I didn't say that. <laughs> you, did I? You, well, you said, said you wanted to punch Ronnie in the mouth. Yeah, you but did, did, I, did I talk about how else robbing? You, how else are you going to punch him in the mouth? Yeah. We're going to have to go back to the internet archives and find that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's going to be used against you, man, when you were for political office. He yeah. wanted to punch Ronnie in the mouth. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're never getting elected. Yeah. <laughs> you um, freaking Reagan puncher. <laughs> so, like you you were just saying, Rob, it wasn't just Reagan. I mean, it was Reagan in, that, in the U.S., Thatcher in the U.K., right? They they really ushered in the, the neoliberal age. And it's really remarkable to think about the shit that went down during the eight years of the Reagan administration. Yeah. And I'm just going to give like, I think we should just give people a tiny, like a little sliver, a morsel of, of the reforms that the Reagan administration. Reforms. Yeah. Reforms. It sounds benign. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And this comes from a much longer list from a book by Kurt Anderson called evil geniuses. The unmaking of America. (laughs) Evil geniuses. (laughs) There was a Saturday Night Live skit like that where Reagan is like this nice, happy, meeting and greeting kids in the white house. And then as soon as they leave, he's like this evil genius, like <laughs> pushing his war stuff and right because because people there was this sort of kind of it was a meme before a meme, but there's like a kind of this portrayal of him as kind of a doddering idiot, right? Yeah. So the idea that he was actually just pretending, but behind the scenes had this. Like, we well, got Nancy with "Don't Do Drugs," and you got the Iran Contra thing and the uh, Noriego. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. We well, got Nancy, you know, talking to an astrologer and getting you know, recommendations. So here, here are just a few things, right? I want to, I want to start by talking about taxes. The debate that we have about taxes these days, about increasing taxes from some measly percentage to a slightly less measly percentage. I think it's just really important to recognize that we had a top income tax rate on the richest. Before Reagan, it was 70%, and then it dropped to 28%. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's just crazy. Why do they all love them? And then then you look at the, the tax rate on stock profits, you know, capital gains, right? They reduce that from 28 to 20%. A lot of the wealth that people are, are generating now really comes from these kind of stock gains. You've got lowering of state taxes on the on the rich. Basically, for for instance, if heirs to like a $3 million fortune after Reagan came in, they would pay about a million dollars less in taxes. Yeah. You know, on that. But the other thing that, of course, is is uh, it's 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 get out of the, the state should not be interfering in the business of business, right. right? They should they should just be enforcing private property rights, and if anyone tries to screw with business, they're going to jail. But business should be able to do what it wants. So they also started just cutting the regulation of corporations, antitrust laws. So there is a long-standing federal prohibition on companies buying their own stock, and it's meant to prevent share price manipulation. Mm-hmm. They, just re- they just got rid of that. Yeah. Media deregulation. 
the federal rule that TV and radio broadcasters must prevent a diversity of views is is repealed. So now, you know, we got our favorite TV stations. And then banking deregulation. This is awesome. Consumer credit is deregulated excessively, causing consumer debt to suddenly explode, you know, and interest payments to balloon. So, I mean, there's more than there's more, but huge changes in banking, media, and and corporate governance. There's a lot on the environmental side too, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, oh. yeah, I mean there's the attacks on on labor and the social safety net. I mean, let's not forget Reagan's really famous firing of the air traffic controllers right. who went on strike to yeah, yeah, yeah. to get fair fair pay, increased wages. His administration is attacking the hell out of unions they're pushing this trickle down economics idea that's why you could you could cut taxes and yeah. you could do all that is because it'd be better yeah, yeah they're gonna they're gonna invest. trickle urine down all over the floor. <laughs> yeah. i mean really pretty rough theory and then you think about minimum wage it was frozen for an entire decade i, I can remember this i remember when I was trying to get a job as a teenager, the, the minimum wage, it was like $3.35 an hour was minimum wage. And it had been that for that whole decade. I miss those. This was the good old days. So, <sighs> it was yeah. good. Well, the other thing that they did, of course, was you see this more and more as the privatization of government functions. Because you think about it, if you're cutting taxes, then the government can't do as much. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, this is the whole plan. Private enterprise needs to step in. The, the worst example for me is the, the whole private prison thing. Right. I mean, there yeah. you have a situation, of course, where now there's a disincentive to reduce the size of the prison population yeah. from the perspective of corporate investment and profits. So that that's just sickening, right? Yeah, yeah. That is a rough one. But I, I think we also got to hit a little bit more on the one you just brought up, share, which is uh, the environmental action. Like I said earlier, you had this Nixon era pumping up of environmental regulations. Well, that all just gets in the way, and we, you know, they're trying to figure out how to undermine environmental protection wherever they can. And this is when there was the scientific consensus around climate change came up in this sort of in this Reagan era, and and this is also when the petroleum industry and the political right got together to be downplaying the the threat that was posed by climate change and CO2 emissions. So, you know, that's that's where you took the smoking lobby, the denial of the medical effects there, and just transferred that over to denying the effects of climate. And, and we all know where we are today facing serious threat and, and, and facing the crises that are coming. Yeah. And as you said, Jason, there's probably a lot more that we could say sort of about how the Reagan era was was in a sense a culmination of a lot of these neoliberal policies and 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 kind of worldview stuff. But I I think it's worth just talking about another, in some ways, even more extreme example of of neoliberalism gone wild, right? Mm. And that is the story of Chile, uh, right? Yeah, what they're willing to do. And yeah. and I don't think we could spend a lot of time talking about it. There's there's some great. I mean, I think Naomi Klein talks about this in her book Shock Doctrine. There there are others who've written about what happened under the Pinochet regime and the role that the specifically the the Chicago School of Economics played. Remember we talked about Milton Friedman earlier from from the University of Chicago, and they had a direct hand, direct hand in shaping 
government policies there. They're sort of given an invitation to come in and tell us how we should set up all of our economic policies, how we run everything. They went so far as to change the constitution to make it impossible, effectively impossible (laughs) for the populace to to actually regain control over a lot of these laws and the way things worked. And they quote unquote, open it up for free markets and privatized just about everything they possibly could. It was it was a hellscape. And in order to it, it's interesting you were talking about sort of the, the compass, right? Earlier, yeah. Jason. It's like Pinochet combined on the one hand this sort of neoliberal quote unquote free market economic policy with with authoritarianism. Yeah, that's you know? fascism basically. I mean it was it was killing off opponents. Yeah. It was as extreme I mean, I guess you can get more extreme, but well, but they were bedfellows with this. They, this yeah. is very much like we actually want the state in the interest of supporting, quote unquote, free enterprise to do whatever it takes, even if it means killing off people. Right. 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 Well, in, in Naomi Klein, uh, as you mentioned, her book, Shock Doctrine, this was the the demonstration project for what she calls disaster capitalism, yeah. going in when there's unrest or problem and then instituting all of these neoliberal principles because you can do it at a time when when people are, are hurting or when there's a, a natural disaster or, or something that disrupts society. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, this is a watershed moment because it's one of those things that there wasn't a big news event about this, but it unleashed this sort of chain of consequences from Powell convincing his neighbor in the Chamber of Commerce to do this and convincing these ultra-conservative, right-wing, rich, wealthy businessmen to fund these think tanks that had the strategy laid out and just take over as much as they could of political life in America and then spread that around the world. But now it's so ubiquitous. It's, it, it is the doctrine of of the nations that we live in and, and travel to yeah. uh, that we don't see it for what it is. Yeah. It's even hard to, to overstate or exaggerate the role to which neoliberal politics and the worldview has, has invaded all aspects of, of daily life and, and politics. You got globalization, you got free trade agreements, offshoring, uh, the gutting of Main Street and an implosion of local economies. You've got climate chaos, inequality. You know, we, uh, we can't go on a rant about healthcare in the United States and, and profit maximization in that sector of the economy, but that's a real problem. You got banks run amok that led to uh, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. Yeah. I mean, think about like the opioid crisis, you know, what, what, what you saw, the Oxycontin and... Hundreds of thousands have died because of this. Yeah. And then and just even more recently in the news, I, I think a really telling example is Abbott Nutrition, right? This is the... This is one of the makers, one of the few makers of, of baby formula in this country. There are not many of these companies around selling stuff at a large scale. And in we had a situation with a real scarcity of baby formula, which literally is a life or death situation yeah. for many families, especially ones where they need it because of their dietary issues yeah. You know, for these poor little babies. And Abbott was a company that had been 
you know, told they knew that they had basically broken machines in in this plant of theirs, I think in Michigan, that was creating bacteria or some kind of infection, actually killed some babies. And instead of choosing to fix these things, to to fix these machines, and it was it actually took a whistleblower for this to, to come out, they decided what did they decide to do instead? Thanks to Reagan era economics, they decided to do a stock buyback. Hey, oh, keep the price of the stock up while they before they Let's go into buy a- back our hey, stock. You know, just shut up. There is one and only one social responsibility of business. That's to buy back your stock. That's to maximize profits. Okay, can we? Can, we all agree with this, right? Yeah. Babies. What did babies ever do for us? They're not productive members of society. <laughs> yeah. for God's sakes. Can't even hold down a job for crying well, out loud. Well, they are if you think about it from the whole adrenochrome thing. They're welfare <laughs> infants. Right. Yeah, they don't do anything. They just drink formula or milk. Right. Yeah. Poop it out. Now, look, we may be showing a bias here, but I would argue that it's fairly safe to say that neoliberalism has clearly failed society, right? Yeah. I mean, you look at all of, you look at a lot of the issues that we're dealing with right now, sort of the unraveling of all of these systems, right? And the neoliberal world order is um, been a major influence in, in all of those things. But I think it's also important to recognize. That progressives, you know, here they had, you know, starting with the Powell memo, developed this long-term strategy, to, you know, to implement and and it seized upon crises like in places like Chile or took advantage of getting people elected like Reagan to enact their things. We've we've seen failures of the neoliberal system happening, right. but where have the alternatives been? They haven't shown up. Now George Monbiot and actually wrote this back in 2016. He pointed this out. He, yeah, yeah. Plug for for George. He he's one of the most amazing critics of neoliberalism as an environmentalist. Yeah, you, you'd kind of think of him as mostly focusing on climate or, or that sort of stuff, but he recognizes it's the neoliberal economics system that's really at the root of the problem. Yeah, and if folks don't know, he's he's a columnist at the Guardian in the UK. Anyways, he wrote he wrote a piece I thought was really really interesting about neoliberalism, and we'll include in our show notes. And in it, he, he, he wrote, quote, Neoliberalism's triumph also reflects the failure of the left. When laissez-faire economics led to catastrophe in 1929, Keynes devised a comprehensive economic theory to replace it. When Keynesian demand management hit the buffers in the 1970s, there was an alternative ready, right? That was neoliberalism. But when neoliberalism fell apart in 2008, there was Nothing. This is why the zombie walks. (laughs) The left and center have produced no new general framework of economic thought for 80 years. I I ought to take issue with that. I think George is overstating it. We've talked about this. There was, of course, the limits to growth came out. There was Herman Daly and all his work on on the steady state economy, ecological economics. I remember that prior to 2008, there was a lot of work on trying to new metrics, you know, alternatives to the GDP, redefining progress, yeah. these kind of things. There was the there was the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, which was sort of different than the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. I think what we need to look at is what what were their budgets? Who was funding them and how much mm. and for how long? Well, I, 
I'm glad you asked because I actually did a little research on that. So let's just do a little comparison. Yeah. Know, okay. Based okay. upon the data that I could find. So here are the budgets I could find for some of the think tanks that, that we talked about earlier that were created or influenced by the Powell Memo. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cato Institute, their budget in 2020, 32 million. Okay? Oh, nice. Uh, American Enterprise Institute, 48 million. Oh. Heritage Foundation, $79 million. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'm just focusing on think tanks, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So think yeah. about like think tanks in our space. And, you know, I think people might define these things a little differently, but um, comparable. We're getting comparable. Yeah. Try so to do as much apple I, would, apples as you I can. wouldn't say just, just economically progressive, but sort of see environmental issues, maybe recognize some, some of some the, the, limits, the broader maybe. issues that, yeah. that we see, right? So, First of all, there are not a lot of them, but but let's look at Institute for Policy Studies, right? Which yeah. has been kind of around for the longest as kind of a progressive think tank. They've got a healthy budget, I would say, but compared to these guys, maybe not so much. $4.5 million. Okay, right? order magnitude less. Go ahead. Keep going. What else? We got the Democracy Collaborative, you know, Gar Alperovitz's group. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit better, $6.3 million. Okay, another order okay. magnitude less. Okay, come. Go ahead. Um, so we've got, we got, I, I never like to, you know, to toot our own horn too much. But, oh, you know, PCI, if you're about to reveal our budget, I don't think you're tooting our horn here. <laughs> just a whopping 800 grand. Okay, two orders to make the two less. Fine. <laughs> Great. All right, donate. Um, anyhow, what about bigger things? You fish like uh, uh, World Watch, Earth Policy Institute, uh, you know, Center for New American Dream, Redefining Progress. We, I know, I'm kind of bringing uh, these up, right? Like these are, these are, these are finishing okay, bigger. Uh, Rip Van Winkle over here has been asleep for a while because they're all gone. And and don't forget the one I used to run, Cassie, uh, oh, yeah. Center for the around. Advancement of the Steady State Economy. It actually has lived on, and they, you know, how many employees? H- they huge have? money, uh, probably thousands. You know, <laughs> I, I I haven't kept up, but I mean, since I left, of course, it's going to thrive. You know? <laughs> right. No, but I think my point has been made, George. Yeah. Okay, follow the freaking money. It's not the ideas are there. I just don't think they get funded. Right. Well, it's a totally unfair fight, right? I mean, you have. These neoliberal think tanks that are funded by corporations, which then allows them to influence politics and media and and bring in more members, more donors. You get this vicious reinforcing feedback loop. And meanwhile, the opposite sorts of think tanks like us, we're on the the, more of a shoestring budget. I mean, I don't want to complain about our funding. It's our Donors are very generous, and I really appreciate it. But you know, you can't compare our budget to the Heritage Foundation. I, I do want to point yeah. out there are, you know, a few larger "quote unquote" liberal think tanks out there that that people might think, okay, well, you, you guys didn't mention them. They're they're not the Heritage Foundation. Maybe they're on the opposite side, right? So, and we're talking about Center for American Progress, right? Uh-huh. And and Demos is another one. Center for American Progress, they have a very healthy budget. We're talking $49 million a year. Demos is like a little over $11 million. But let's be honest, they're basically neoliberals too, yes. right? Yes. I think that's the case. You'll find it's like, Go back to the political compass map, for example, and you look at political figures in the United States, and both Biden and Trump are on the same in the same quadrant and not that far apart. The the Democrats are a little bit lower down and left lower down than the Republicans, but they're in the same exact quadrant of the authoritarian right. It's it's fascinating how much vitriol and and polarization there is between these two. Yeah, parties that are almost in the same spot yeah. in the yeah. squadron. They are, and they're just they're just they're just chunking up 
these social issues in different ways, using them as wedges. Right. That's kind of the issue, right? I mean, people think there's a 50-50 split in the United States between conservatives and liberals, and maybe that's true culturally or, or you know, on, on these wedge social issues. I think it mentioned. is true. I mean, and there's, I, I think we should just say there is a meaningful difference there. Right? Yeah. When we're yeah. talking about the, the rights of, of, people to marry someone of the right. same sex or sure. have an abortion, you know? Yeah. Sure. But the the comparison to make, though, is with economic issues. There's no 50-50 split there. No. We, we, and the kinds of things we're promoting, like degrowth, are are just not even close to half half of the conversation. We've got neoliberalism dominating all the political... Yeah, I'm glad you you brought up the degrowth thing, Rob, because you know, I was thinking about this that there are people who argue that we need to return to to Keynesian sort of economic policies. You well, know, like MMT is somewhat aligned with that. Yeah, it? or modern you know, monetary theory. Bingo. You, okay. You talk about the Green New Deal, which is like we're going to provide employment and the government's going to spend a bunch of money to help with the renewable energy transition. All well and good. But, you know, these are ideas of like, you know, sort of green growth it's still fixated on consumer demand, which is where Keynesian economics was. And and um, reliant on a fantasy as well that you can continuously true. grow the economy while not using any energy or, or materials. Right. And so degrowth is like, I don't know if, if Mombi would agree with this, but saying that there hasn't been an alternative sort of put out by by the left it's their failure, you know, to not take advantage in a sense of the failure of neoliberalism to come up with an alternative. I don't think the alternative is going back to Keynesian economic theory. Is it is it degrowth? Good question. But degrowth is not a popular aspirational vision that you can imagine politicians selling to the public. So I think it's a real it is a real challenge to think about how to do that in this moment. Yeah, it's a lot easier to sell denial, delusion, and climate chaos. Well, let's just do that then. Okay, listeners, you have heard a lot from us. And if we haven't scared you away yet, you've got a chance to get a little more interactive with us. We're going to be staging one of our favorite events of the year, the Crazy Town Hall. This is like staging like the moon landing? Kind of. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, the Crazy Town Hall is an interactive event that will take place on July 12th, 2022 at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time. And you get to be in an online conference with the three of us. And you can ask us questions. We're going to play fun games. We're going to get some insider dirt on the podcast. And, and maybe we'll laugh. Twister, right? We're going to do Twister? Okay. Is that the <laughs> That'd game? That'd be great. Okay. Yeah, so the Crazy Town Hall, it's for uh, for real crazy townies, right? People who want to support the podcast. So if you'd like an invitation to the town hall, we're asking that you make a recurring monthly donation. It could be of any amount to the Post Carbon Institute. If you're already a donor, we thank you so much for your support. You're going to automatically get an invite. And keep in mind, your donations help us with things like buying enough duct tape to repair our microphones. That's Uh, important. It is. But hell, if we get enough donations, maybe we can hire some decent hosts. Oh, my gosh. 
I would love that. <laughs> you would awesome. love it. Our listeners would love it. I am. Seriously, please join us at the Crazy Town Hall on July 12th, 2022. To sign up, go to postcarbon.org slash crazy town. That's postcarbon.org slash crazy town. Hope to see you there. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Well, for a first do the opposite, we need a new Powell memo for this moment in history. And Jason, I'm going to recruit you to my side to convince a share to be the author of that. Doesn't the Miller memo have a nice I like that. I was, I was wondering what the name would be. And yeah. uh, I think that's it's got a nice alliteration. Yeah, the Miller memo. Do you think we can get Miller Light? To like, <laughs> yeah, uh, fund it like course. Yeah. You know? That can be your executive summary, Miller Light. <laughs> Brought to you by Miller Light. <laughs> well, that's a major undertaking. I, I agree with you. But the other thing I would just say is we are lamenting how few think tanks are, you know, promoting. <laughs> that's uh, getting lonely you know, out here. <laughs> alternatives. So if listeners can support them, billionaire listeners. Billionaires, great. Yeah. Uh, but I would say any form of support helps. Even right? hundred errors. Yeah. <laughs> um, support the few think tanks that get it and are, are putting out alternatives. But the other thing is it's about shifting narratives. I mean, I, I talked about that a little bit, just talking about the challenge of, of framing and promoting degrowth, sort of an alternative. We need a new story. Part of the appeal, I think, of, of neoliberalism and, and the success that they've had was – it wasn't just about the fact that it was aligned with their self-interest. Their philosophy and what they're espousing also happened to make them a shit ton of money. Yeah. That makes it a lot easier. Um, yeah. But it's also that they had a narrative that tapped into something. This idea of equating free markets and enterprise with freedom for people, for the individuals, that story's failed. I mean, we've we've seen that. So we need a new one. It replaces the story of... Freedom and individualism with the story and the story of progress and growth with one about maybe it's about meaning and purpose. It's about regeneration and it's about beauty and connection. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know Hell, it sounds throw, cheesy, uh, How about throw survival good. on that heap as well? Yeah. Yeah. That would work. I, I also think uh, you're right. Totally right. A new narrative is long overdue. I also think we need to consider how we relate with one another. So if if neoliberalism is about this increasing depersonalization in the marketplace and buying and selling and becoming less and less of a community, maybe we can kind of turn that around. Uh, we were we were joking earlier, like, what's the opposite of neo? I think, uh, Jason, you said it's paleo. So yeah. may, maybe we can develop a a, a paleo-progressivism or a paleo-communitarianism. Yeah. Yeah, That's and, and, a good terms for this. Yeah. Well, and the idea is that we really embrace mutual aid and true relationships in a community-based market where your interactions have much more meaning, much more of the personal touch behind them. Yeah, they're, they're voluntary and, engagement in a sense. There's yeah. no some heavy state actor making you do anything, but you are doing things together. Well, and right. this, this is especially yeah. important as the neoliberal economic system collapses. I think that's right. I think that's what I, I want to talk about, yeah, like do the opposite, because the the system we're seeing <laughs> is not going to last, right? And if you ask 
who are in charge right now? What are, what is their political philosophy, right? It's the opposite of the three of us, okay? Everybody in the dominant political business leadership today, in so-called Western nations that we mostly inhabit, they're in the authoritarian right. And guess what? If you believe it, what allows this system to flourish, this neoliberalism, this basically synonymous with globalization, all the trappings of high energy modernity, the big state systems that are there to support all that. It's this mm-hmm. duopoly with state and market in the large sense. Mm-hmm. If that's coming to an end, then we probably need to look at, and I'm talking to maybe politicians and political and business leaders, we probably need to look at the opposite political philosophy to come up with some reasonable responses on how we're going to organize or reorganize societies. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds easy. Let's get to it. We want to give a special thanks to Ilana Zuber, our star researcher of the watershed moments through history. Without her work, there's no way we could have covered such sweeping topics this season. Yeah, and we also want to thank our other outstanding volunteers. Anya Steyer provides original artwork for us, and Taylor Antal prepares the transcripts for each episode. And a big, big thank you to our producer, Melanie Travers, who helps us bozo stay professional. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. If you want to help others find their way to Crazy Town, please drop us a five-star rating and hit that share button when you hear an episode you like. Guys, I am so sorry about today's sponsor, but I want to let you know they paid us a shit ton of money. And relax, okay? They assured me they do not want us to change our messaging at all. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, even though they just gave us more funds than we have seen in the past decade. Hmm. Okay? Okay, here it goes. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, here it goes. The following message is brought to you by the Nero Institute. <laughs> Crazy Town is hosted by three middle-aged white guys. <laughs> If you are young or a person of BIPOC background, you should not trust them. We have looked into the financial records of the Crazy Town hosts, and they are not at all that impressive. (laughs) They missed every big opportunity to cash in on the wealth generation of their generation, not buying Apple or Amazon or Tesla stocks or any cryptocurrencies. Pathetic. Oh, and their jowls sag. But let us not dwell on their personal failings, which are too many to enumerate anyway. I'm getting offended here. I don't have saggy jowls. What are you talking about? Quiet. (laughs) Clam your yapper. Most importantly, the ideas on this podcast are un-American, anti-apple pie, and even border on anti-human. That's right. It may be fair to call them traitors to our species. Their rants on the progress myth are tiresome, and their disrespect to Ronald Reagan is infuriating. (laughs) And they keep saying stuff about energy we don't understand. But we want them to stick around, and the Nero Institute will fund them at obscene levels. Why? Because they are the perfect foil to the way of life we espouse. Human domination, state control, market liberties, and best of all, decadent freedom. Okay, sorry I had to do that, guys, but... That was tough. I, they better be paying us a lot of money oh, to sit there and be insulted I, like I'm going to use whatever they funded us to go get a jowl lift. Yeah, I, I, I need that. Crazy town. Da, 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 da. Crazy town.